Psalm 95, followed by Hebrews chapter 4. O come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Let us come into his presence with thanksgiving. Let us make a joyful noise to him with songs of praise. For the Lord is a great God and a great king above all gods. In his hand are the depths of the earth. The heights of the mountains are his also. The sea is his, for he made it, and his hands formed the dry land. O come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker, for he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as at Meribah, as on the day at Massa in the wilderness, when your fathers put me to the test and put me to the proof, though they had seen my work. For forty years I loathed that generation and said, They are a people who go astray in their heart, and they have not known my ways. Therefore I swore in my wrath, They shall not enter my rest. Hebrews 4. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear, lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For good news came to us just as to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. For we who have believed enter that rest. As he has said, I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest, although his works were finished from the foundation of the world. For he has somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way. And God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again, in this passage, he said, they shall not enter my rest. Therefore, since it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of disobedience, again, he appoints a certain day, today, saying through David so long afterward, in the words already quoted, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then, there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, Let us hold fast our confession. 
For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. This is the word of the Lord. We have entered again to the series we are currently working on in Hebrews. We're going chapter by chapter through the book. We took a brief respite last week for a a message on water baptism, just in order that people would be of one mind and one heart. Um, And I think it was a very profitable week, and I'm actually encouraged that we were able to take a short break, because Hebrews, if you haven't caught the uh, tenor of it yet, Hebrews is a a little bit um, serious. The first six chapters, especially once you get to chapter six, and then again, even in chapter 10, they're very weighty chapters. And one of the things that I think is helpful is to understand that we should hear them in seriousness. We should hear them with, uh, with fear. But that fear is a godly fear. It's not like the regular sorts of fears that we think where we're terrified and afraid of evil, but rather we should be terrified and afraid of God. And I want to correct one of the kind of sub-narrative themes, I think, that Hebrews helps us to correct. There's this modern notion in the church that the Bible, when it says fear God, it doesn't really mean fear God, it means honor God. And I think that's ridiculous. Because it pulls the teeth out of the bite. It, it removes the punch from the, the word. That word to fear God is to tremble before someone. Whoever you fear, you obey. Whenever, if you want to see how someone fears their boss, just have their boss give them a negative review. What do they do afterwards? They seek to amend their performance, right? They seek to get in line, hopefully, unless they're operating in immaturity to that correction, they attempt to reform. They attempt to uh, put themselves right. And so when we hear the scriptural invocation or scriptural command to fear God, we can't just write that off. Oh, that's a word, that's a, you know, a phrase, a, 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 an idea that doesn't really have uh, the truth behind it. No, fear is a simple word, and it simply means to treat as holy, to regard as needing to obey, And essentially what it means, it means to fear. It's very often hard to describe words that are so elemental to our language. The more complex a word is, the more able you are to dissect it into its various parts. But fear is one of those ideas that's very primitive, or or that is to say, it's very elemental. It's hard to dissect what fear really is. It simply means to fear. And this spiritual sense of this word will become more and more clear as we go through Hebrews. We've engaged with it a little bit, and we're going to engage with it again today. And so I want to look at fear as a virtue. When, when that popular uh, notion of fear is dismissed as, oh, well, that means honor or revere or, or respect, uh, when that is, is brought about, it's brought about for, from probably a good place at some level, but ultimately it leads to a bad outcome. That good place that it comes from is the desire to reconcile it with the scriptural prohibition against fearing those things which are not God or those people who are not God. 
And so they seek to see fear as just this one idea, fear is bad, love's great. But this verse, this passage of verses, this chapter, presents fear as a virtue. Fear is something that's commanded, in fact. It's not just encouraged, we're not just encouraged to have fear, we're commanded to have fear. And that fear is a vital aspect of healthy Christian living. I want to look at the present reality of God and the necessity for repentance today. As it says here, today, if you hear his voice, many people think that they can put off the repentance, which is required or called for or commanded here, but it is not the case. You cannot put off repentance, and we're going to be looking at that. Then uh, after that, we're going to look at the paradox of faith. What I mean by paradox is not... You know, when you get a doctor gives you an opinion, you go to another doctor for a better opinion. That's not the paradox, right? It's also not the paradigms, right? Paradigms, two dimes. Don't even have enough for a quarter. That's how, that's how much you should pay for a joke like that, less than a quarter. A paradox is something that is seemingly impossible. Okay, so if you ever watch Back to the Future, that's a movie about time paradoxes. You know, he goes back into the future and he starts to disappear because he's undoing the reason for his existence, right? So that, that's maybe a popular notion of what paradoxes are. They're, they're things that seem to be impossible, but actually are quite true, especially as they're contained in the Word of God. The Word of God is infallible, unbreakable, perfect in every way. And so here we see a paradox of the nature of faith. We're going to look at that. And one of the reasons why I think it's helpful to look at these linguistic aspects of the text or these uh, you know, uses of language is it is a beauty. It is a beauty which you can learn to appreciate. I myself do not yet like a lot of different types of wine. I like one or two types of wine because I'm not very schooled in wine. At the same time, I have and love and have tried over a hundred types of cheese because I love cheese and I I've learned about it. I appreciate its subtleties and differences. I found this one cheddar with the help of some people at Dorothy Lane Market. It changed my life. It was, it was, a, great, it was a great thing. You have the capacity to behold and savor beauty. You have spiritual taste buds. God gave you a mind, and you should use that mind. You, our culture wars against that. You're constantly encouraged to check your mind at the door, whether it be a menial job that doesn't have any actual fulfillment. You should get a better job, work your way out of that job. Or it's television, or it's just surfing the internet for three hours a day. You are constantly uh, either moving toward using your mind to love God, which is part of the first commandment, or you're slipping from that. You are able to appreciate the beauty of the scriptures. And one of the things I think becomes more and more enriching is to see how the scripture presents spiritual ideas through turns of phrase, simile, metaphor, etc. Repetition. Uh, we, we often talk about a, a big word called chiasm. If you've been at this church, you remember chiasm possibly by the hamburger. You know, there's a bun, there's condiments, there's a burger, and then a bun. You know, the bun encloses, the, the main point of a hamburger is the, the meat inside. And that's, you know, one of the ways that we've seen scripture speak. Well, today we're going to look at these things that are seemingly um, impossible. These, these metaphors, these parables, if you will, 
uh, of language that show the spiritual truth within them. And there's actually three which I want to highlight at the end of this chapter. And then finally, the aspect which we are told to do in hearing this message, hearing with faith, we are told to consider Christ and to run to Christ. It is not enough that you begin to understand you must fear God, but also that God himself is the remedy for the fear of God. Our God is not just a holy God, as we worshiped him in holiness earlier today. He is not just a beautiful God. He is not just a terrifying God. He also is a God of grace, mercy, and love, and a God who is able to provide every succor for those who would seek to petition him for grace. He is able to soothe and console and remedy the heart of Christians who at one point or another, be it from sin or circumstance, find themselves questioning, does God love me? Does God really receive me as a child? This, this passage tells us we have every right, and dare I say obligation, to run before his throne when we need to. And that is, that is a part of learning how to walk in spiritual maturity. As we've been looking throughout the book of Hebrews, the, one of the overriding themes is not just Christ's supremacy, not just Jesus's glory, which is a great theme, but also our need to behold him and to take hold of faith by his grace, to do it in a gracious way. And so it's not as if we begin to tremble and fear God and then cower from him. The true and right fear of the Lord leads us to run to him all the more. So that's what I want to look at today, those four large ideas. So let's begin at the beginning. Uh, this idea of virtue uh, containing fear, fear is commanded here. And those things which are commanded are things which are virtues in the scripture. If you ever see something commanded, especially in the New Testament epistles, those things are considered to be virtues. Loving your neighbor, loving your wife, raising your children after God's own plan. Those things are virtuous aspects of life. The fruit of the Spirit should be character attributes. As the Spirit works his uh, grace in your life, your life should be attended to and evidenced by the fruit of the Spirit. And those fruit are also aspects of char character. They're aspects of personality. And in fact, I think they, they become evidenced in habits. I think generosity, the, the aspect or character attribute of generosity, is a state of being that is manifest through acts of kindness, giving of time, especially also giving of money, giving of things, or making room for someone. Generosity and hospitality create space for people to live in. It's a way to love your neighbor. And so character attributes or virtues are evidenced by things that we do or do not do. For example, honesty leads us to not tell lies, right? You don't go around lying if you are practicing honesty. At the same time, charity, mercy, allows you to be liberal with your finances, to love your neighbor. It doesn't use the grace of God for selfishness. It uses the grace of God to provide a covering for others. This is kind of what the scripture is talking about with Ruth and Boaz, how Boaz extended a covering over Ruth. And so as Christians, we're called also to create space for our neighbor. And uh, Lest you think that this is some sort of liberal idea, this is what classical Christianity is all about. Bear one another's burdens. Fulfill the law of Christ. This is what we're told to do as Christians. And so this is why throughout history, Christians have always had within their own churches insurance schemes, 
and systems of remedy if terror or destruction should fall, fall upon one of their members. If you go back in history, even a hundred years ago, all of the orphanages in the country were either, if they were in a colony which uh, was a state church united colony, which many of those colonies were, perhaps those orphanages were funded by the, the state, but almost all of the orphanages in this country were religious orphanages. They weren't run with government funds, they weren't run with anything other than the contributions of local and regional churches contributing for these orphans to live. And so all of the best hospitals, if you even to this day, still have little symbols of, of that. I was just, uh, I think it was either yesterday or the day before, I drove by St. Elizabeth's Place downtown. If you're a citizen of Dayton, you might know where that is. The reason it's called St. Elizabeth's is because it was started by a church. The government doesn't name things after saints. Well, they name things after their saints, but that's a different point. Um, and so this is, if you go throughout the country, you see all of these hospitals that bear the name of, of good things. Sacred Heart Hospital is, is one of those, if you are a big fan of the show Scrubs, uh, you might remember Sacred Heart. Why is it named Sacred Heart? Because that was a Catholic hospital. So Christians have always understood their faith as having it take hold. It, it, it is manifest. It becomes manifest. It's not that it should, it's that it always does. As a favorite theologian of mine, Douglas Wilson, says, your faith always gets worked out your fingertips. That is to say, your, your faith is evidenced by the things that you do. Now, that being said, it does not mean that everything you do is in accordance with faith, but rather that your faith should be and will be worked out. And so if we see something that we're doing in our lives that's out of step with our faith, we're called to submit that area of life to Christ. And so fear is a virtue, and virtues are evidenced. And so the point here that the Hebrew writer is making is that we should fear God, and that will necessarily lead to things we do or do not do. The Bible talks about the fear of the Lord as being the beginning of wisdom, you cannot have wisdom at all without the foundation stone of the fear of the Lord. This is why people in the world who are not followers of Christ, they may have knowledge, they may have technology, they may have understanding of some sort, but they do not have true wisdom. And so perfect love casts out all fear, but at the same time, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. How do we reconcile those types of of usage of the same word fear. Well, we understand that everything which is not the fear of God is a fear that is to be repented of, removed, warred against, but the fear of the Lord is a virtue. Verse one, therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear. That is an invocation. The, the Hebrew writer is commanding his audience, the, the hearers, to fear. He's advocating this as a thing that we ought to do. Let us fear, lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. It means to be circumspect. It means to be uh, making sure of your calling and election. Verse 2, for good news came to us just as to them. What is the them that he's talking about? In the context of the prior ver chapters in Hebrews, he's talking about the people of Israel who, although they heard God, did not obey him because they did not hear him with faith. 
We've been looking at that for three weeks. We heard it again in our psalm today. And again, in this chapter, the Hebrew writer is engaging with Psalm 95 and comparing his hearers today with the hearers back then. And notice he does not say that they were under the law and we are now under grace. He says, for good news, the gospel came to us just as to them. What was the good news? The good news was that God was going to install them in a land, having delivered them from the power of Egypt and having destroyed Pharaoh completely, persisting them through the wilderness despite their rebellion. He was bringing them into a good land and promised to be their God. That was gracious from God's perspective. For good news came to us just as to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith. The uniting of a heart by faith to what it's hearing, namely the word of God, can only be done by the spirit of God. Nevertheless, the Hebrew writer says that we should fear lest we be hearing in vanity. If we hear the word of God and it doesn't perform an effect or cause a change in our heart, we cannot delude ourselves in saying, I have truly heard God. You must be able to see the effect. And that effect as we'll see at the end of this chapter, is a particular thing that's measurable, that's identifiable. The reason for this fear is that those who heard, of all that heard before, not all heard with faith. Both the psalmist in Psalm 95 and the Hebrew writer in this passage connect God's role as creator to his role as redeemer. This is very important because the Hebrew writer is attempting to bring these Israelite Christians of the first century out of the temptation to fall back into Judaism or to apostatize away from the faith so as to turn away from Christ. And the way that he helps to create this understanding of the importance of Jesus Christ is to show that God's redemptive act or God's salvation is intimately connected to his authority as creator. And the reason he does that is because in this time, in the first century, Christians understood the role of Yahweh as creator, as the supreme attribute of God's salvation that he began to work out through the world. The psalmist directs us at the beginning of the psalm in Psalm 95 to praise before the Lord with thanksgiving because God's greatness has been revealed through the things that he's made. Romans 1 is in play here. Psalm 95 is, is telling us this. We're not going to go through detail, but I'm going to quickly look at this. Verse 3, for the Lord is a great God. Verse 4, in his hands are the depths of the earth. His heights, the height of the mountains are also his. The sea is his, for he made it. He connects the creatorial aspect of God, or this, this understanding of Yahweh as the maker of everything, to his deliverance of the people from Egypt. This is a major theme of the Old Covenant, which we've studied before, but I want you to see how the Hebrew writer makes use of that knowledge. Similarly, in this passage, we are told to seek God with godly fear because of the salvation which has been revealed. The Hebrew writer collects, connects God's deliverance, that is God's salvation, the sending of his son, the atonement which his son performed, with the same weight and gravity of creation itself. I want you to see this. In the Hebrew-minded person of his day, the one who would be hearing the Hebrew writer's letter as it was passed through the churches, they primarily understood Yahweh's first action of displaying his glory was the creator. And then at this point, the Hebrew writer says, connecting it to that through Psalm 95, that God's role in delivering them from Egypt 
is connected to that. And just as that's connected, so also Christ himself and his work is on the same playing field as God's glory in creation and God's glory which was revealed against Egypt. The Hebrew writer says Christ is just as important as creation itself. To the readers of the first century, this was a foundational understanding of who God was. Christ is the final revelation of who the Father is, according to Hebrews chapter 1, which we saw about four or five weeks ago. This is the central theme of Hebrews, that Christ is supreme and unrivaled and very, very important. So we should not presume to have heard him, but make sure that we have heard him and are trusting in him. That is what Hebrews is telling us to do. And in fact, we see this throughout all of the chapter. Here we see it in the way that the Hebrew writer talks about creation in relation to the deliverance of God. Uh, he says in verse 4, <clears throat> for, uh, sorry, for he has somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way, and God rested on the seventh day from his works. Aren't you, aren't you just encouraged by Hebrews? I love this, because I never remember the references in the Bible, and the Hebrew writer gives me the authority, biblically speaking, to say, somewhere it's written. I love that. Keep in mind, the chapters only made it in at like 900, and the verses only came in at like 1,400. They're not, they don't pervert the scripture, but they're not very important. Um, they are important, but they're not supremely important. For he has somewhere spoken. So what he's doing is he's saying the deliverance and rest that God has made and provided for the people of God, that was signed by or pointed to by the Sabbath. That is, God's initial rest after six days of creation, he rests upon the seventh, and the rest of God is now being opened up to the people of God. This rest is, is connected to the creation itself. The writer then reasons from this sovereignly designed plan, namely that the Israelites would not all receive it, but rather that some would fall away in order that the Gentiles would come in. He reasons from it in this way, that their refusal of the grace of God has opened up an opportunity for us. If you have never heard of this idea, I would encourage you to, to read Romans 8 through 11 to understand this. Really, the whole book of Romans in one setting would be a great way to go, but if you only have a, a certain amount of time, Romans 8 through 11 would help you to begin to see this sort of theme in Paul's theology. He says that Israel's rejection has provided an opportunity for the grace of God to come to the Gentiles. And this is exactly what's going on in this passage. Verse 6, since therefore it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of disobedience. Postulate A, because there's still an opportunity. And postulate B, because some of the ones who heard it before didn't take that opportunity. We should hear the words today as applying to us. Again, verse 7, he appoints a certain day today, saying through David, so long afterward, in the words already quoted, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. This should be a way for you to have the alarm bells going off. This is the way that the scripture uses to highlight, underscore, put flashing text uh, you can't do that in the Greek. All you have in the Greek are capital letters. You don't even have punctuation. So the way in which the Bible communicates the importance of something is by over and over again repeating something. And in chapter 3, we looked at last week in verse 7 and 8, it says, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. 
as in the rebellion. And then again in uh, chapter 3, verse 15, as it is said, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts, as in the rebellion. And then finally again in chapter 4, verse, uh, verse 6 and 7, the words already quoted today, if you hear his voice. The point is clear. The Hebrew writer is saying, there is a very real chance that you will harden your heart. He's calling his hearers to understand the severity of what's at play here. In hearing the words of God, you can delude yourselves, thinking that you've heard, but not making any attempt to repent or believe that word. Here he says, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. And this is why I I note it as the present reality of God. This is probably the most common deception for those who attend church services or those who hear the gospel preached publicly. When they, fear, when they begin to feel the weight of conviction from the Holy Spirit, they reason with themselves, well, you know, I'm in college and college is a time of temptation. I'll get around to it later. Or we just had this baby and it's taking us some time to get things right, but in a few months everything will be better and then I'll start loving my spouse. Or, you know, my boss is a real jerk and it's justifiable that, you know, I treat him badly and talk about him because I'm just venting. I just need to get a little steam off. This is what the sinner does day by day with the word of God. He says to himself, I'll repent tomorrow. I'll look at this. I'll give seriousness to it tomorrow. That day which is appointed in which they would believe is called today because that is the only day in which you can respond. Putting off a response to God is a response to God. It's the response that is worse than outright hatred. It's indifference. Ask anyone who's had unrequited love as a teenager uh, or anyone who's been spurned by, you know, they, they have this phrase that's in popular parlance, there's hell hath no fury like a woman scorned, right? Some of you husbands know what I'm talking about. The point is that there is a rejection of the word of God that is happening by the sinner who puts off repentance for the day. He says, well, I'll get serious about it next week or next year. Brothers and sisters, we're told over and over again, this is a serious and terrible tragedy should it fall us. The reason for this is to warn against it. He says, today, appointing that it is said by David in an eternal now, a day by which any time the scripture is spoken or the word of God is faithfully preached, the opportunity to repent is present. And God is pleading time and again with the heart of sinners, come to the waters, dip your heart, I will wash you, I will cleanse you, I will satisfy your thirst. And yet over and over again, the sinner, the the one who puts off the conviction of the Holy Spirit, who resists God, that sinner puts it off and incurs condemnation and judgment. All the while, the sinner has good intentions. I'll get around to it, but what is happening is the weight and deception of iniquity is compounding. I have a thing that I'm trying to do right now, which is to really understand the force of compounding. Uh, there's a, I don't know if this is a true quote, but Albert Einstein, for all his um, you know, powers of physics and knowledge of, of mathematics and calculus, he didn't really understand Uh, finance that well, but he did have one insight that was amazing. He says, there's no power in the universe as great as compounding interest. And the reason why is not because it's mathematically greater than some other function or something like that. It's because of the weight 
that builds. The longer you stay in debt, the more your debt grows. This is kind of what happens for those who put off the grace of God. They say, I don't need this today. I'll get around to it. The weight of iniquity deceives them all the more, and their hearts become callous over time. This is what goes on for the sinner who puts the words of God at bay or, or resists God's voice. And the scripture is clear. It, in saying three times, today if you hear his voice, it's attempting to say, as the Trinity is numbered three, all the more this is important, do not harden your hearts before God, but rather come and submit. The spiritual sluggard reasons this way, and he has no chance to repent if he does this forever. Verse eight, for if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. What he is saying is, though the people of Israel did not receive the commandment to rest in God, there is a rest for the remnant of God. Through, uh, through Joshua's entrance into the land, though it was mighty, the tribes of Israel were not faithful to drive out all the inhabitants of the land. This is what I believe the Hebrew writer is kind of bringing to mind in his audience who were well-versed in the Old Covenant uh, scriptures. If you remember what takes place in the Exodus, Moses leads the people for 40 years through a generation. They war against him. They rebel against him. Moses fails to treat God as holy one time in the wilderness and is so prevented from bringing the people into the promised land. That was done for us as a sign, as a symbol, for us to understand the holiness and severity of God. That under the eyes of God, no flesh can remain. But rather, even Moses, the most holy and humble man of all time, save for Christ, possibly save for John the Baptist, he sinned before God and needs an atonement. He was prevented from entering the land. And if Moses is prevented from entering the land, what chance do I have? as someone who is infinitely more sinful. Although I'm sure Moses had his own sorts of sins, we, we don't know them. We're, they're not recorded for us. Nevertheless, this is the way we ought to think of ourselves as those who are the chief of sinners. And so not able to enter the land of rest and needing one who might make an atonement for us to be able to enter and not only make an atonement, but to reform us so as to bring us in to the land and allow us to stay. This is, is ultimately Israel's downfall through the Old Covenant scriptures. If you see one thing in the Old Testament which constantly is like a thorn and a thistle in the side of Israel, it is this one fact that the, the generation of Joshua did not kill all of the wicked inhabitants of the land. They never ever take the full possession of the land that God gave to them. Even in the time of David and Solomon, there were still, we see this at the beginning of David's life, there are still Philistines that are large enough to actually cause skirmishes to go on in Israel. And even in the time of David, there were treaties made with neighbors who were terrible neighbors and ultimately treaties which would be their downfall. Because they did not destroy the inhabitants of the land who were murdering their children and acting like Sodom and Gomorrah, they themselves began to be infected by this disease. Those same inhabitants rose up and pestered them through military oppression, and then not only through military oppression, but also spiritual oppression. The very gods that they were called to destroy in the entrance into the promised land, those very same gods they took up and began to worship. 
Baal was not an invention of Israel. Baal was worshipped at the time of Abraham. And that was God's whole point in bringing them into the land. He brought them in as a judgment against the iniquity. Unless you say that's, oh, that's something terrible, I want you to understand that what takes place in Sodom and Gomorrah was worthy of judgment instantaneously in the time of Abraham. And it absolutely was. They tried to rape angels who visited them. And instead of raping angels, Lot, who lived there, gave his daughters away. Now, if that's not iniquitous and worthy of judgment, then you don't have any reality with God. If you're still thinking that God's terrible for doing that, you are operating in a spirit of atheism. But if you recognize that as righteous and holy and worth judging, then you have to see God's patience. He gave Abraham this land saying, you'll inherit it. And then for 400 more years, those same sorts of sin, the sins of offering up their children as sacrifices to Moloch, the, the sins of committing uh, sexual orgiastic rituals through the worship of Baal and Ashtaroth, uh, those were going on for 400 years, for 10 whole generations, until the time of iniquity was so complete and so full that there was no chance of repentance, and God brings in his people to judge them. Now, I want you to understand that the, the unrighteousness of Israel was an offense to God. They were God's mission to remove the land of that iniquity, and they failed to uphold God as holy so as to obey him. That ultimately was their downfall. And in a spiritual sense, I believe that according to Paul's knowledge in 1 Corinthians 15, he says, these things were done for us. I believe that that is a parable by which we should see the sinner or the Christian who comes to faith, who begins to approach God, but never makes war on all sin in their life. I believe that's the exact same thing. And ultimately, those sins have the ability to rise up and destroy you. If you are not at war with sin, sin will be at war with you. I think that that image, that parable of Israel, not rising up to kill all the nations that were in the land, that that is a parable of spiritual compromise for Christians. And that parable for spiritual compromise is a danger that is faced by every single person. It's every single person. And if you say in your heart, well, I'm not in in that danger, then I would say that you're probably already in the danger of pride that has gripped your heart completely. If you believe that you are past this reality, then I believe that 1 John says rightly that you deceive yourself. If we say we have no sin, we make liars out of God and we deceive ourselves. You have a great need for Christ. And Christ is a great remedy for your need. Nevertheless, you never are without need. And so this parable is the, uh, a sign given to us for the importance of pruning things at the ground. What does it mean to prune at the ground? That's kind of a, a strange phrase. If you ask anyone who's worked in landscaping, you, you know that you usually don't prune at the ground. You prune some branches, right? Uh, we have a few people in our church who have worked for landscaping companies. I myself, I really like plants. And one time I was having this problem where these little silk, they weren't silkworms, they were like little caterpillars that were just as destructive as silkworms, but they didn't actually provide a benefit. <laughs> you know, With silk, you can at least like take it and make it into something. These are called tent caterpillars, and basically what they do is they 
eat the fruit on a tree or the leaves of a tree, and they make these little tents, but then they start to grow and they get really unsightly and they're, they're horrible. And in fact, they're so bad that when people tell you to remove them, they tell you to take the entire branch, like six or seven inches uh, higher up the branch than where you found the caterpillars in case they have put eggs somewhere near there so that you deal with the problem. Well, you know, it, it, it's actually so severe that they tell you you shouldn't even throw that in a compost pile. You should actually burn it to kill the caterpillars. Now, that is a great parable of sin in and of itself. Now, I didn't know this at the time, and so I put a picture of my tree up on the internet to this one particular tree forum that I respect and, and regard as as helpful. And one of the pieces of advice came in and said, well, with that kind of tree, the best thing you could do is actually just to prune it at the ground. And I was like, what? I was genuinely confused. And he means that tree is terrible. It'll eventually probably fall on your car. You should cut it down. When you prune something at a branch, it continues to grow. And in fact, you release these hormones that cause more growth. Uh, it's, it's a dynamic of the way that God created trees and, and shrubs. When you prune something, you actually take off for a short season a little bit of growth, but you inspire, you release hormones which cause more growth to come about in just a few short days, if not weeks. And so uh, this, is, this is the way that it's spoken of, of sin. With sin, you must prune at the ground. And even pruning at the ground, sometimes little things come back up. It, not only should you prune at the ground, you should take an axe and kind of bore out the center and then make a fire in the old tree. That's how you get rid of a tree. You pour chemicals on it or you create a fire so that the roots begin to burn so that it's totally dead. That is what it means to deal with sin in fullness of faith. What it means to deal with sin in fullness of faith is to have confidence that what God says about sin is true, that the wages or the offspring or the product of sin is death. And that death, which is brought about because of sin, will ultimately befall you. And I'm not speaking just about natural death. We understand that Christ will raise us at the last day, but the spiritual death, which is considered here in these ideas in this passage, that is all the more serious. That death is an unending death. In light of the hardening of Israel, the writer encourages his hearers all the more. He says, let us therefore, or in light of what we've just considered, let us strive to enter the rest. And this is where we begin to see the paradox of faith, right? Think about this. He says, let us strive so that we might enter. Let us strive to enter the rest so that no one may, be, may fall by the same sort of disobedience. We strive in order to enter. We're told to be diligent and to be on our guard and to be adding zeal to our obedience and zeal to our belief in order that we might obtain rest. It seems like an opposite, and yet to the spiritual, to those who are mature, it makes total sense. The sense of this is clear. We ought to be so circumspect concerning our spiritual state, not lazy nor distracted by the cares of this world, nor childish or immature, but we should strive all the more to lay hold of Christ. Paul says, I forget what I have experienced in the past in order to run all the more swiftly. I leave what's left behind, I let it go, and I press on to pursue. I lay hold of Christ to obtain that which for which Christ has laid hold of me. That is what the spiritual invocation is here. We strive in order to obtain the rest. 
Not a striving that is in our own effort or by our own zeal, but a striving that's done in response to the promises of God. Notice that it has to be in response to because faith only comes by hearing. You cannot manufacture your own faith. The greatest aspect, the greatest way to respond in faith is to continually put the word of God before you. Not only by sitting through good preaching, but also engaging with the scriptures and soliciting, asking for godly friendship and encouragement from your fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. Concerning the things of this world, the cares of this life, and things which are immature, I would encourage you, many of us are living lives of triviality. I was on Facebook last night, and I, um, I, I sometimes tune in to what people are talking about on their Facebook page. I'm not even going to mention, other than a brief mention of the name, of Pokemon Go. Now, if you're playing Pokemon Go, I don't really care. But if you're a young man, 18, 20, and you're obsessed with video games and cartoons and spending time on the internet and goofing around, you were called to maturity. You're, you're, being, you're, you're having the opportunity to take hold of God taken from you because you have not had a father, a spiritual father, call you up. Put away childish things. Now, that being said... I don't think it's necessarily a sin to play Pokemon Go. But if you're doing it for a long period of time and you haven't opened up your scriptures lately, I'm not laying condemnation on you. That already is the judgment of God. It is the judgment of God to be distracted by things of triviality, things that will pass away. You were called to life. So, Again, the paradoxical nature of our faith is presented. So we strive to enter rest, right? That doesn't make sense to the natural mind. If I am tired in the natural mind, I take a nap right away. I don't work harder to take a nap. I take a nap then. This is the same way. We can only find healing and deliverance from death or the end of our life by presenting ourselves before the thing which can cut apart our flesh. Normally, in the, in the natural, if you have a knife or a sword pass through you, you die. You either bleed out or you're instantly in shock and out of consciousness, and then eventually you, you fade away. But the scripture here tells us to seek for spiritual healing by presenting ourselves to the word of God. Look at this. Look at the paradox here. It says, for the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit of joints and marrow and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. This is really the promise of the new covenant, isn't it? It's that God would remove the heart of stone. That's an operation, right? He, he opens up your life. He cuts to the quick in order to expose that which needs to be removed. If you want to get really grossed out later today, just ask any one of our nurse uh, employees, whether it be John or Leah Gray or Beth or anyone else who's studied medicine, ask them what you have to do with gangrene. That's set in for a long time. If you really want to be grossed out, I would encourage you, Wikipedia or Google Image Search has a great amount of visual information. Now, why do I bring up, you're all, you're all almost you know, revolting right now even thinking about it, the reason why is because gangrene shows us the seriousness. Sometimes you have to take the limb. 
That's what God is saying about sin. He's saying, you know, in Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, he says, if your eye causes you to stumble, it's better that you pull it out and throw it away. If your hand causes you to stumble, you should cut it off and throw it away. He says, it is better to enter life, I think he's meaning spiritual life, it is better to enter life both blind and lame, or maimed, mauled, than if you go to hell with a whole body. What he's saying is that it requires serious surgery. Sin is not something that can be tolerated. A little bit of leaven leavens the whole loaf. It works its way through. But here's the problem. Our eyes don't cause us to sin. Our hands don't cause us to sin. Christ says it is not what goes into a man that defiles him. It's not a matter of what you eat, but rather what proceeds out of his mouth. For what proceeds out of the mouth comes from the heart, and the heart is filled with jealousies and evils and slanders and adulteries. That is what needs to be fixed in man. Man does not need an outward reform. Man does not need pruned. Man does not need a new facade or a remodeling of the exterior. Man is wicked at the heart, and the new covenant says that that heart is to be removed, and a new heart is to be installed. That is what the promises of God are. Look at how how paradoxical this is. Verse 13, no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Think about that the next time you're, uh, you know, feeling good about your spiritual maturity. You are, you are before God and God sees all and he knows all. Now, that's, that might sound very, very intimidating and, and quite fearful and indeed it is. But At this point, we see these three paradoxes. We must strive to enter rest. We must present ourselves before the one who can fillet open our heart and cut it apart in order to find spiritual healing. And finally, that the one who cannot be seen by those who are impure in heart sees the hearts of all men. Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount said, blessed are the pure in heart for they will see God. What's the alternative? Those who are not pure in heart cannot see God at all. The all-knowing, all-seeing God who created the world sees the state of each man truly, and all men have been found wanting. All men have been found wanting. Before God, all men are wretched, naked, blind, lame. That is the state of all men. That is why we are told to fear lest lest we should not enter the rest of Christ. Now, we see our great need, and what is the gospel to this great need? First of all, it is a sign of God's grace that you even recognize your need. Without a recognition of the need, there can be no seeking to lay hold of that remedy, and the remedy is this. Though we are laid bare before God, we have a covering in Christ. Though God, he is also man, and he can sympathize with us in our weakness. That's the driving theme or force in this passage. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast to our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Every temptation that you face, Christ knows. And it's not a knowledge that is just a divine knowledge, but rather it is a knowledge which he acquires through the incarnation, through his experience. Our God is not a hypothetical God. Our God is a real God. And that reality is proved in the incarnation. And so what we're told to do is to hold fast to our confession. Well, what is our confession? 
Our confession is that we have a great need before God. Our confession states that Christ came into the world to save sinners. This is what Paul gives as the most important doctrine to Timothy that he should take hold of and make sure he never rejects. He says, this is a statement that's wise and worthy of full acceptance, that Christ came into the world in order to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. Paul was given grace by God in order that you might have confidence before him. Paul murdered Christians. Paul dragged to jail Christians. Paul was probably the guy in Acts 6 and 7 who was like holding the coats at the meeting where they stoned Stephen. Paul was involved in the murder of Christians, and yet he was called and given grace. He was given an apostleship, he says, in order to bring about the obedience of faith in the Gentiles. And the reason why he's able to do that is because he's a living testimony of the unlimited grace of God. That a murderer, one who is worthy of death, should find new life in Christ. That's amazing. The next time you, ha- you lack confidence, I would encourage you to meditate on the Nicene Creed, which says, we believe in the communion of saints. And what that means is that there is one church throughout the entire scriptures. It's not Israel and the church. It's not the New Testament church and the modern church. We're all separate. There is one true church. You've been engrafted into a body in which a guy like Paul is welcome. And if Paul's welcome, you know, I haven't murdered anybody actually. Uh, I've murdered a lot of people in my heart, uh, as you have. And uh, nevertheless, Paul's welcome at the table. Our confession is that standing before God, we have a greater debt than we could ever pay. You have no resources to remedy your state before God. But at the same time, you have a greater Christ still. Christ is able to save to the utmost that would call on him. And today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We ask you that you would give to us an idea of our spiritual state before you, that we would see our need for Christ, that we would reject all false doctrines which state that we need to persist in weakness or in sin or that it's tolerable to repent later. We pray that you would give us spiritual insight, that you would open up our eyes. I pray, Father, that right now by your spirit, you would remove scales that blind people. God, we know that we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against spiritual powers, and simultaneously that the God of this age, the little G God, has blinded the minds of unbelievers that they would not believe in the gospel. We ask you that you would bring about an obedience of faith that would respond in rightness in full repentance and faith toward you that would hear your voice and that those who are dead would live. In Jesus' mighty name, amen.